0: Hello, this is Dean Hess, Editor of Respiratory Care. I am here with Sarah Moore to present the October podcast. Sarah, let's get started.
1: Our first paper is by Berg and colleagues, and its title is The Rapid Shallow Breathing Index as a Predictor of Failure of Non-Invasive Ventilation for Patients with Acute Respiratory Failure. They evaluated the ability of the RSBI, to predict failure of NIV and mortality in acute respiratory failure. This was a prospective observational trial of patients with acute respiratory failure treated with NIV. NIV was initiated at the discretion of the clinicians, and an RSBI was recorded on the initial level of support. Patients were categorized by initial RSBI value as either high, greater than 105, or low, less than 105. The primary endpoint was need for intubation, and the secondary endpoint was in-hospital mortality. Of 83 patients with an RSBI less than 105, 31% required intubation, compared to 55% with an RSBI greater than 105. Mortality was 8.4% with an RSBI less than 105, compared with 33% of patients with an RSBI greater than 105. The authors conclude that an RSBI greater than 105 is associated with need for intubation and increased in-hospital mortality. Whether patients with an elevated RSBI could also have benefited from an increase in NIV settings remains unclear.
0: Although noninvasive ventilation may reduce the need for intubation in acute respiratory failure, it is not successful in all cases, and there is no standard method to predict success or failure. Berg and colleagues evaluated the ability of the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index to predict noninvasive ventilation failure and mortality. They found that a rapid shallow breathing index greater than 105 during non-invasive ventilation was associated with greater need for intubation and increased mortality. What is unknown is whether patients with an elevated rapid shallow breathing index could also have benefited from an increase in non-invasive ventilation settings. This is not the traditional way of using the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index, but, as Wolf points out in her editorial, there may be a larger role for Rapid Shallow Breathing Index to gain insight into our patient's overall balance between respiratory load and support.
1: Our next paper is Occurrence and Complications of Tracheal Reintubation in Critically Ill Adults by Menon and al., the aim of the present study was to describe the occurrence and complications of failed extubation and associated risk factors, and to estimate the mortality and morbidity associated with reintubation attempts. It was a cohort study of 2,007 critically ill patients admitted to the ICU with an endotracheal tube. Patients were classified into two groups based on the requirement for reintubation. Never reintubated versus greater than or equal to one reintubation. Baseline characteristics, ICU and hospital stay, hospital mortality, and inpatient costs were compared between patients successfully extubated and those with reintubation outside the operating room. Reasons, airway management techniques, and complications of intubation and reintubation were summarized descriptively. 19% of the patients required reintubation and 11% were reintubated within 48 hours, primarily due to respiratory failure. Patients requiring reintubation were older, more likely to be male, and had a higher admission severity score. The occurrence of difficult intubation and complications were similar for initial and subsequent intubation. Re-intubation was associated with a five-fold increase in the relative odds of death and a two-fold increase in median ICU and hospital stay and institutional costs. Difficult airway at re-intubation was associated with higher mortality. The authors conclude that nearly 20% of critically ill patients required out-of-operating room reintubation. Reintubation was associated with higher mortality, stay, and cost. Moreover, a difficult airway at reintubation was associated with higher mortality.
0: The extent to which a difficult airway at reintubation contributes to patient morbidity is unknown. In this study, the authors found that nearly 20% of critically ill patients required reintubation. Consistent with previous reports in the literature, reintubation was associated with high mortality, increased length of stay, and higher cost. What may not be as well appreciated is that a difficult airway at reintubation is associated with higher mortality. As Bittner and Schmidt point out in their editorial, clinicians should be more vigilant in identifying patients. Patients at risk for intubation failure. However, unnecessarily delaying extubation is also not good and can lead to complications. Clearly, additional research is needed to identify the absolute best time for extubation.
1: Bronchodilator response in patients with normal baseline spirometry is by Hedgewald et al. They retrospectively analyzed adult patients tested in two academic pulmonary function testing laboratories over a seven-year period with specific attention to patients who underwent bronchodilator testing after a normal baseline spirometry. The frequency of a positive response to bronchodilator defined as a 12% and 200 milliliter increase in either FEV1 or FVC was calculated and associated with demographic factors. Of the 1,394 patients with normal spirometry who were administered bronchodilator, 3.1% had a positive response. The percent of patients responding to bronchodilator were grouped according to pre-bronchodilator FEV1. 6.9% were greater than the lower limit of normal to 90% of predicted. 1.9% were between 90 to 100% of predicted. None were greater than or equal to 100% of predicted. An FEV1 to FVC ratio in the lowest two quartiles was associated with a higher frequency of bronchodilator response. Older patients were more likely to respond to a bronchodilator, but no other demographic factors were associated with a positive bronchodilator response. The authors concluded that, in their study population, the frequency of a positive bronchodilator response in patients with a normal baseline spirometry is 3.1%. None of the patients with a pre-bronchodilator FEV1 greater than 100% of predicted, and only 1.9% of patients with an FEV1 between 90% and 100% of predicted responded. Bronchodilator testing can be omitted in patients with normal spirometry and an FEV1 above 90% if predicted as they have a low probability of a positive response.
0: Spirometry before and after bronchodilator administration is performed to assess the reversibility of flow limitation. In patients with normal baseline spirometry, the frequency of a positive bronchodilator response has not been described. In this paper, the authors retrospectively assessed patients who underwent bronchodilator testing after a normal baseline spirometry. None of the patients with a pre-bronchodilator FEV1 greater than 100% of predicted Predicted responded to a bronchodilator. They therefore recommend that bronchodilator testing can be omitted in patients with normal spirometry. As Dwyer and Abraham state in their editorial, routine ordering of bronchodilators with spirometry may be wasteful when spirometry is normal. One must also be careful about false negatives, but there were none in the Hedgewald study when FEV1 was greater than 100% of predicted.
1: Next is the paper by Q. Camille et al. Heated and humidified high-flow oxygen therapy reduces discomfort during hypoxemic respiratory failure. They conducted a prospective randomized trial with a final crossover period to compare nasal airway caliber and respiratory comfort in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, receiving either standard oxygen therapy with no humidification or heated and humidified high flow oxygen therapy in a medical ICU. Nasal airway caliber was measured using acoustic rhinometry at baseline after 4 and 24 hours, and 4 hours after crossover. Dryness of the nose, mouth, and throat was auto-evaluated and assessed blindly by an otorhinolaryngologist. After the crossover, the subjects were asked which system they preferred. 30 subjects completed the protocol. The baseline median oxygen flows were 9 and 12 liters per minute in the standard and humidified high-flow oxygen therapy groups, respectively. Acoustic rhinometry measurements showed no difference between the two systems. The dryness score was significantly lower in the humidified high-flow oxygen therapy group. During the crossover period, dryness increased promptly after switching to standard oxygen and decreased after switching to humidified high-flow oxygen therapy. 53% of patients preferred humidified high-flow oxygen therapy, especially those who required the highest flow of oxygen at admission. The authors concluded that upper airway caliber was not significantly modified by humidified high-flow oxygen therapy compared to standard oxygen therapy, but humidified high-flow oxygen therapy significantly reduced discomfort in critically ill patients with respiratory failure.
0: Non-intubated critically ill patients with acute respiratory failure are often treated with high flow oxygen. This study compared standard oxygen therapy to heated and humidified high flow oxygen therapy. Upper airway caliber was not significantly modified by humidified high flow oxygen. However, it significantly reduced discomfort in critically ill patients with respiratory failure. This adds to the body of knowledge related to humidified high flow nasal cannula as has been recently published in Respiratory Care and elsewhere. Al-Khatib correctly clarifies that, although high-flow oxygen therapy has a role in the management of hypoxemic respiratory failure, future research should be directed towards understanding its mechanisms of action, as well as to identify early predictors of failure.
1: Next is the paper, Dead Space Fraction Changes During PEEP Titration Following Lung Recruitment in Patients with ARDS by Guo. They performed the study to evaluate dead space, arterial oxygenation, and compliance changes during PEEP titration following lung recruitment. 23 ARDS patients ventilated in volume control mode were enrolled in the study. Sustained inflation was used as a recruitment maneuver followed by decremental PEEP changes from 20 to 6 cm water in steps of 2 cm water and then to 0 cm water. Dead space, pulmonary mechanics, gas exchange, and hemodynamics were recorded after 20 minutes at each PEEP step. Compared with dead space at the PEEP levels of 20 cm water and 0 cm water, dead space was significantly lower at 12 cm water, and respiratory system compliance was significantly higher at pressure step 12 to 10 cm water. Compared with PaCO2 at the PEEP level of 20 cm water, PaCO2 was significantly lower at 12 cm water. Arterial oxygenation and functional residual capacity were reduced gradually during PEEP, decreasing from 20 cm water to 0 cm water. The authors concluded that significant changes of dead space, compliance, and arterial oxygenation could be induced by PEEP titration in subjects with ARDS. Optimal PEEP in these subjects was 12 cm water. Monitoring of dead space was useful for detecting lung collapse and for establishing open lung PEEP after a recruitment maneuver.
0: Despite a close relationship between PEEP and dead space in patients with ARDS, few clinicians titrate PEEP using changes in dead space. The authors of this study evaluated dead space, arterial oxygenation, and compliance changes during PEEP titration in patients with ARDS. They found that optimal PEEP could be determined by the highest compliance in conjunction with the lowest dead space, suggesting that monitoring of dead space might be useful for PEEP titration.
1: Clinical and epidemiological features of 2009 pandemic H1N1 influenza differ slightly according to seroprevalence status during the second wave in the general population in Mexico is by Elizondo Montemayor and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of these clinical features from non-confirmed cases of pandemic H1N1 and to compare them according to seroprevalence status in northern Monterrey, Mexico, during 2009, and to identify predictive signs and symptoms as there have been no prior serologic studies in Mexico. During November to December 2009, 2,222 volunteers ages 6 to 99 years were categorized into three symptomatic groups influenza-like illness, respiratory illness, and non-respiratory illness. Antibodies against influenza A H1N1 2009 were determined by a virus-free, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay method. Demographics and clinical presentation were assessed through face-to-face questionnaire and the association with seroprevalent status was determined and compared. Overall seroprevalence was 39%. Of the seropositive subjects, 67% were symptomatic and 33% were asymptomatic. 71% of seropositive symptomatic subjects reported respiratory illness, 17% reported non-respiratory symptoms, and 12% reported influenza-like illness. The most common symptoms were rhinorrhea, nasal congestion in 93% and headache in 83%. No significant difference was found between the symptom profiles of seropositive group compared to the seronegative group, nor of the median duration of symptoms. The seropositive group had a significantly elevated proportion of influenza-like illness compared to the seronegative group. The proportion of subjects who took days off and who sought medical attention was significantly higher in the seropositive group. The authors conclude that one-third of the seropositive subjects were asymptomatic and few had an influenza-like illness. No difference was found in the symptom profiles of the seropositive and seronegative groups. No single symptom predicted seropositivity.
0: This paper describes the clinical features of H1N1 according to seroprevalence status in Mexico. They found that a third of seropositive subjects were asymptomatic, and few had an influenza-like illness. No single symptom predicted those who were seropositive. Interestingly, there was no difference in the symptom profiles of the seropositive and seronegative groups.
1: The critical illness polyneuropathy in septic patients with prolonged weaning from mechanical ventilation. Is the diaphragm also affected? A pilot study is by Santos et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate the presence of diaphragmatic and peripheral critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy in septic patients with prolonged weaning from mechanical ventilation. It was a cohort prospective study. In two Brazilian medical-surgical ICUs, septic patients greater than or equal to 18 years of age, dependent on mechanical ventilation for greater than or equal to 14 days, requiring prolonged weaning from mechanical ventilation, awake, and with no previous history of polyneuropathy or myopathy were included. Electrophysiological studies of the limbs and also of the respiratory system by phrenic nerve conduction and needle electromyopathy myography of the diaphragm were performed in all subjects. Twelve subjects were enrolled during six months of study. The electrophysiological signs of peripheral critical illness, myopathy, and or neuropathy occurred in nine subjects, seven of whom died in the ICU. Three subjects developed critical illness polyneuropathy, four critical illness myopathy, and two developed both. Only one subject who developed peripheral critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy did not present diaphragmatic involvement, whereas no subject developed diaphragm involvement alone. Thus, electrophysiological signs of diaphragmatic critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy occurred in eight subjects and in nine of the subjects with peripheral critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy. Upon clinical examination, eight subjects were not able to move their limbs against gravity, and these findings were related to the presence of peripheral and diaphragmatic dysfunction. The authors conclude that these findings suggest that critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy is common in septic patients with prolonged weaning from mechanical ventilation. The inability to move limbs against gravity is frequently associated with peripheral and diaphragmatic critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy, and the findings of critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy in peripheral electrophysiological tests are associated with diaphragmatic and involvement.
0: Critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy is a common alteration seen in the ICU. The objective of this study was to evaluate the presence of diaphragmatic and peripheral myopathy and neuropathy in septic patients requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation. Consistent with previous studies, they found that critical illness myopathy and or neuropathy was common in this population of septic patients. Inability to move the limbs against gravity was frequently associated with peripheral and diaphragmatic myopathy and neuropathy. Relevant to respiratory care, the finding of neuropathy or myopathy in peripheral electrophysiological tests was associated with diaphragmatic involvement.
1: The final original research paper this month is, The Relationship Between Skeletal Muscle Oxygenation and Systemic Oxygen Uptake During Exercise in Subjects with COPD, a Preliminary Study by Tibira and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to investigate the influence of skeletal muscle oxygenation on oxygen uptake during exercise in patients with COPD. Eight subjects performed an incremental cycle ergometer exercise test. The authors measured ventilation and pulmonary gas exchange with a metabolic measurement system. They also continuously monitored SpO2 and measured tissue oxygen saturation in the vastus lateralis with continuous wave near-infrared spectroscopy. The authors calculated the muscle oxygen extraction rate based on SpO2 and tissue oxygen saturation. With the increasing exercise intensity, many subjects showed a gradual decrease in tissue oxygen saturation and SpO2, but a gradual increase in heart rate and MOER. Oxygen uptake was negatively correlated with tissue oxygen saturation and SpO2, and was positively correlated with heart rate and muscle oxygen extraction rate. However, peak oxygen uptake was not correlated with any of the slopes. The authors conclude that oxygen uptake is highly influenced by oxygen utilization in exercising muscles, as well as by blood oxygenation levels and cardiac function. However, the impact of skeletal muscle utilization during exercise on peak oxygen uptake varied greatly among the subjects.
0: This study investigated the influence of skeletal muscle oxygenation on systemic oxygen uptake in patients with COPD. The authors found that although oxygen uptake was highly influenced by oxygen utilization in exercising muscles, the impact of skeletal muscle utilization on peak oxygen uptake varied greatly among the subjects.
1: This month, we are pleased to publish a paper from the New Horizons Symposium, The Ventilator Liberation Process, A Fresh Look at the Evidence, which was held at the AARC's 57th International Respiratory Convention in Tampa, Florida, November 6, 2011. McIntyre discusses evidence-based assessments in the ventilator discontinuation process, Hess covers the role of non-invasive ventilation in the ventilator discontinuation process. Bittner and Schmidt update the role of tracheostomy. Branson covers ventilator modes to facilitate weaning. Haas and Loike describe the evidence for ventilator discontinuation protocols. And mendez tellez and Needham discuss the role for early physical rehabilitation in the ICU. Our case reports this month cover pulmonary emboli from therapeutic sodium hyaluronate and disseminated aspergillosis associated with tsunami lung. Our teaching cases are related to Rosé-Dorfman disease of the lung and tuberculous pleural effusion.
0: To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.